Welcome to the Buyer's Desk, an Infra podcast. We'll guide you through quick snapshots on Infra trends and insights, interviews with member store buyers and brand founders, and we have curated segments from Infra staff. Hey folks, and thanks for joining us on another episode of The Buyer's Desk. I am Chris Sorensen, Promotions Program Manager. And I'm Angela Bozo, Director of Member Programs, and we are your hosts. We are, and we are back today, and we're discussing biodiversity and soil health. So both of these are important aspects to farming, but especially in regards to organic certification. And now, regenerative organic certification is taking it to the next level. But today we're going to get into the weeds, so to speak, (laughs) on the importance of these two factors. And we're going to hear from a few different perspectives. So I'm joined by Matt Olson, Infra Fresh Program Manager, uh, regular on the show now, to chat with Jessica and Ariel from the Real Organic Project and the work they're doing to bring more transparency to organic certification, especially in the produce department. And I'm super, super excited to share my interview with a legend in the natural foods industry, You may know him as the founder of Garden of Life, or maybe as the New York Times bestselling author for his many books. Um, Some of them range from The Maker's Diet, Planet Heal Thyself, or his newest book, The Probiotic Diet. Today, we'll be talking to Jordan Rubin, the co-founder of Ancient Nutrition. And Angela, what do you got going on? Well, I had the pleasure of speaking with one of our Infra members who farm and run a retail store, Steely's Farms Market, Noel Steely. He breaks down a lot of what he's learned in the literal field and wraps it up beautifully with a nod to the learnings on the retail shelf. Jim Olson is back this month with his crazy, insightful three minutes of spins, calling out brands that are highlighting the soil health aspect of their lines. But first, we're going to hear from Stephanie, the co-owner of Alexander Family Farms, the first regenerative organic certified dairy brand on the market. Hello, we are Blake and Stephanie, owners of Alexander Family Farm, and we are here to talk about biodiversity and soil health. We are a fifth generation dairy family farming organically on the northern coast of California. We are America's first certified regenerative dairy and producing award-winning kefir, milk, and yogurt that is grass-fed and contains only the digestible beta-casing protein A2A2. So our products are gut-friendly and earth-friendly. With our holistic regenerative rotational grazing and composting practices, we increase the life and biodiversity in the soil exponentially and sequester carbon by the hundreds of tons. We are soil farmers, so we can grow nutritious pastures from which our cows make nutrient-dense milk to provide delicious, healthy products for our customers. By tending to the critters below the ground, The land above flourishes and our farm is home to thousands of species, from majestic Roosevelt elk to eagles and healthy coho baby salmon. Please watch our video on our homepage at alexanderfamilyfarm.com. Hello, I'm Jim Olson, Spins Retail Insights Manager for Infra, here with a rundown of what's happening on the data side of the natural foods industry. As mentioned in previous episodes, sustainability as a driving trend in natural foods has evolved considerably within the past year, most notably with a deeper focus on eco-friendly practices and how product ingredients are grown, cared for, and cultivated. And with the world's hottest days ever recorded taking place last month, 
it's imperative to support efforts that improve soil health, allowing greater moisture retention and carbon capturing to combat the effects of global climate change. But where to start? There are several different label claims available for brands to tout their efforts towards soil health and biodiversity. The gold standard is regenerative organic certification, requiring a multi-month to multi-year process to prove tangible improvements in soil health without the presence of toxic pesticides, as well as proof of social fairness criteria revolving around equitable pay and quality working conditions for farmers. Land to Market Verified Regenerative is another available product label, also committed to soil health improvements, but gained through the outcome of the crop's production rather than just the practice, meaning a brand needs to show improvements in soil health, but does not need to show how it achieved those improvements. There's also a Greener Worlds Certified Regenerative by AGW, which takes a different approach than the previous two by emphasizing metrics tied to energy efficiency and on-farm biodiversity, while also holding firm on restrictions of glyphosate and nitrogen fertilizer. Now that we understand label claims surrounding soil health, it's time to highlight some excellent brands committed to this cause. First, fresh off their Infra Bricks Award win for sustainability stewardship, Lundberg Family Farms. Their founders saw firsthand how poor farming practices triggered the Dust Bowl, and since then, four generations of Lundberg family have been dedicated to caring for their farmland responsibly and sustainably, diversifying the grains grown and committing to non-GMO seeds for all their rice products. Next up is Yapon Brothers American Tea Company. As the only native caffeinated plant in North America, the Yapon Holly provides the basis for a great natural alternative to coffee and supports biodiversity and protects local ecosystems by providing habitats and a source of food for much of the wildlife in the Florida wilderness. Another fun fact, Infra currently accounts for 75% of all Yapon Brothers sales in the natural channel. Finally, I'm excited to highlight Little Bucks, their line of buckwheat-based seasonings and snacks, and their mission to heal our planet with healthier soil. Recognizing the buckwheat is an excellent cover crop that is a plant used to slow erosion, improve soil health, increase biodiversity, and increase yields for other crops. Little Bucks founder Emily Griffith partnered with Minnesota's very own A-Frame Farm, itself a Regen Organic Certified Farm, to form a beautiful partnership committed to improving soil health in the U.S., Little Bucks is also improving their sales up 111% at Infra over the past year. My thanks to Foodprint, Spins, and the respective brand websites for the definitions, data, and details used in this piece. I wish you all luck in closing out the summer successfully and embracing our planet from sky to soil. As always, I'll see you at the show. I'm here today with Noel Steely of Steely Farms. How's it going today, Noel? Great. How are you? I'm doing good, too. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time joining us here today on the Buyer's Desk podcast. Uh, we decided that it would be fun to talk to you uh, because we are focusing this episode on biodiversity and soil health. But before we get into that, would you just give me a little bit of a setup about how you how you got to where you are, like and a little bit about your business so that we can kind of level set the conversation for our listeners? Sure. Sure. Um, I'm a third generation California farmer. My grandfather moved to Anaheim where Disneyland is from South Dakota and began farming up there. And uh, then my father moved the farm here to an area called Valley Center in San Diego County. And uh, when he passed away, my brother and I bought out our, our other sibling, there's seven of us total. 
decided to partner up and uh, we bought out our family in 2000. And in 2002, we were certified organic and off and running. So we've we're, we've been in this farming game for a long time. Yeah, third generation. That's amazing. Out of curiosity, do you have kids that have shown some interest? Yes, I do, but uh, I, I, I can't say that I'm pushing them. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough racket in, in that. In California, yeah, I absolutely hear you there. I'm, I immediately comes to mind kind of a, a like a water shortage piece. But what would you say is the toughest part? Yeah, water, water and labor are go hand in hand, and then regulations. Okay, so I heard you tell me that you guys got certified organic, which is amazing. Tell me a little bit about what that process looked like for you. Well, for us, it was really easy. I had already been running the farm for my dad for ten years or so when when he passed. And my dad was a chicken farmer. The reason we ended up in Valley Center where we are is because um, he, he was pulling out orange trees in Anaheim to put in chicken. And chickens and housing don't mix. Well, in the 1950s, uh, housing was encroaching big time on all the farms in Anaheim. So he moved the farm here. And we were the chicken farmer. So we knew the benefits of chicken manure and using raw manures on the farm uh, versus chemical fertilizers. And so he just back then you just didn't certify organic there no such there was no such thing and then we did move to a a hybrid of that we were using chemical fertilizers in some places that were too labor intensive huge bill slide and we found that where we only used the chemical fertilizers we couldn't really get the production that we wanted and the trees didn't look as healthy and and so we went to uh spending a little bit of labor and doing both and uh, that was actually the probably the pinnacle of our production that was probably the best way to go and being being certified organic since you know 2002 i don't look back and say it's a bad thing to be certified organic but i will say that when i'm sick or my daughters are sick i will treat them naturally first but if i need to i'm going to go get you know the prescription that they need to be healthy and uh in as a certified organic farmer i i don't have that tool to use a chemical that would uh, kick the trees in the butt or, 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 you know, or help me on in a short term. Um, I have to wait for the, the slow, the slow release of organic and how that works. And so it's, it takes a lot more planning and you look at things a lot differently. Um, there's no quick fix when you're an organic farmer. It's a year round as all farming is, but with organic, it's almost a little more intense that you have to look at things today as they will affect you next spring. And uh, so if I'm applying a, a manure or a compost now, I look at how that's going to help or, or hinder, in some cases, the soil in a year. Well, and that's, that's how you look at things. Um, being in Southern California, we, uh, we don't have to worry about runoff, really. We've had heavy rain this year, but it wasn't enough to run off. And that's the heaviest rain we've had in 10 years. So I don't have those concerns like other people do. So I can really maintain my my property very, very healthy and very clean. That is a perfect segue. And it just, you know, you, you mentioned manure and you mentioned compost, but tell me a little bit about, are there other are there other parts of soil health that are like long-term considerations just in farming or specifically organic farming? Well, yeah, you, uh, you know, rotation, crop rotation and, and soil health, uh, what you put in, it, it's all, in my opinion, you know, it, it, it's second nature to me, but it's all one basket. 
and you know, do you plow or or disc, or do you leave it fallow and just let it fit, or do we uh, no-till it? Those are all tools, but it all they all have different levels of use um, and reasons for for them. Um, just like a mechanic has a different reason for using one oil over another, it, it does something different for that vehicle. But same, the same concept is true in farming. It's not one shoe fits all. You can learn it out of a book, but you also got to just learn by the seat of your pants out here. <laughs> so is there like the way I understand this and please correct me if I'm wrong, like the there would be different there would be different amendments you would make to the soil depending on your crops. So are there um, do you have like great success stories in that area or maybe even spectacular failures? Oh, sure. Um, we really post the use of chicken manure and then we mix it with um with the local horses around here are pampered so they get new shavings almost daily it seems like so we get the shavings come in here and we we turn that into a really nice compost they also pick up uh fish waste from one of the fish processors down in the city of san diego and i haul that up here and, and mix that in at the same time and it becomes a really good product and you can grow anything in it. But if you put in too much of the shavings, then you'll suck the nitrogen out of the ground if you haven't composted it correctly. Or if you put in the shavings without composting it, the nitrogen will go and your plants will just sit there and yellow and they won't grow. But a great example of where organic was actually better than than the old conventional way was a was a grove, an avocado grove on the side of a mountain. And, and my dad's house was on the other side of the valley. But we took care of that grove and we were using uh, chemical fertilizer, nitrogen to feed that grove constantly. And that was actually a tool to to help outgrow a pest that was eating avocados back then. So it was a constant feed every week of nitrogen, liquid nitrogen. But this one triangular block that you could see from the from dead dining room table was always yellow. And so we went to work, my guys and I, and we carried a couple of five-gallon pails to every tree of chicken manure. And we, we didn't stop putting on the chemical fertilizer, but we continue, we put on chicken manure just on this one triangular block that you could see from that dining room window. And lo and behold, two months later, it was green and it stayed green forever as long as we kept doing those buckets of chicken manure. And so, you know, that that's when I say the combination is probably the best way to farm, but being an organic farmer, I can't. And so I can plan for that triangle to be green and I sustain it, well, it's going to take a little more work as an organic farmer. Uh, but that's one story that particularly shows, you know, how soil health makes a big difference. You can't just throw chemicals at things and say, this is going to work. You know, the lawn's always going to look green if you keep feeding it, but you got to feed it every single week. And that's why you walk through somebody's neighborhood and it smells like chemicals because they're feeding their lawn every week. I like to say when you tour my farm, you're going to smell a lot of things, but none of them are chemical. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Do you have a particular crop that you are the most proud of? Oh, I, I've changed so much. I used to be an avocado farmer, and that's what I really loved was being an avocado farmer um, and avocado and citrus. Now we do a heck of a job on strawberries. Oh, those are harder, right? A little? Uh, yeah. Yes and no. There's so much research out there now that we can get these great organic fertilizer in a liquid form. So we go out, in fact, we started in uh, March prepping the land for next fall, which will be October. We'll be planting our strawberry plant. 
we started prepping that land um, last March. And so the first coat of, of compost uh, went down back then. Um, so we put in a ton of compost because strawberries really eat a ton of food, uh, but they that their roots don't go very deep. So all that food needs to be sitting right on top of the soil. So we build it up really heavy and disc it in several times and really prep it. And But we don't plant in there, which is a pain. We, we'd love to use that land for other products, but because also we're battling nematodes and things like that. So we don't want any bad things living in that soil. So we want it to get as arid and as dry as it can, but at the same time, get as much of that compost built into there. Then we purchase some, there's some really good um, liquid fertilizer. Some of them are liquid fish and, and things like that. And the, the combination really keeps those strawberries healthy. And so that's, that's kind of our trick is uh, a constant feeding where our strawberries are really down and they're still producing like crazy today, even as hot as it is, but, um, but the size is gone now. So it's just the, the nature of the plant. They run out of, they run out of the big stuff after a while. Are you growing more than one variety? No, we stick to just the Monterey. We used to do Albiar also, but we grow the Monterey. It, it seems to hold up best for us. So we do that. That's about it. The, the other crop that we do really well and, and is, uh, the blackberries that we grow. And uh, that was a learning curve too. It seemed like this was just a weed. You just water it and grow and throw some manure on it and, and keep watering it. But uh, it's amazing how if you bring up the potassium level during the summer and fall when they're just growing and they're not, there's nothing. And actually the old canes are dying at that time. If you really push potassium, then the berries will hold up longer when they're picked on the door shelves. And so, that's uh so that was a learning curve back you know, 10 years ago or so when we started doing blackberries but uh, now i've shipped blackberries from san diego to oh hell i've gone all the way to england with them by air free well you know do you think that because you have the store you were like you know that the potassium and the perishability on the shelf that was a more immediate connection for you like we're talking like a substantial difference with that potassium no, I learned put this. I learned this before we had the store. Um, what I things that I learned about later when, with the store were uh, zucchini and how it has to be all uniform. You know, people people want the same product year round, <laughs> and so they want it to be the same size and the same beautiful piece of you know. So if it's a little little bit too big and it doesn't pack the same way in the box as the guy down the street or the commercial guy up, you know, up the coast from me, then it's not going to sell. And, uh, so I, I learned by seeing things come in, in my produce department that I don't grow in the off season. So a lot of, a lot of the products I put on my shelves are from my farm in the off season. When I don't grow them, we're bringing them in from, from other organic suppliers, the big guys. And, um, so I see, okay, I got to do that better. I got to teach my crew how to pick it at that size and at that length. And, and it's got to be this. You know, so I learned things like that. You know, why does my lettuce, why does my kale wilt, but this guy holds up so well? So then I find the farmer and I talk to him. <laughs> oh, I love that. That's really that's cool. That's a, that makes perfect sense to me. Thank you so much for all of the insight. Really, really appreciate your time today. No problem. Take care. All right. Yeah, you too. Take care. Bye. 
Angela, it was so great hearing from Noel and getting his perspective. You know, I really love that connection of being both a farmer and a retailer, and that gives him that visibility into finding ways to both farm and harvest more intentionally, you know, for retail sales, like, you know, the different size produce that he talked about, being able to see other farmers have the right size and he was, you know, going too big or too small. So that was interesting. And I'd never consider that you could increase this shelf life of berries with potassium. Like, that's so cool, right? Yeah, I also love how in that interview, he sort of like he, he kind of meanders into those insights. You know, it was just like this natural extension of him talking to me about everything he'd learned about soil health. And then, of course, that involves the end product, of course, on the retail shelf. But it did. I like how he he kind of got there organically. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, it really was a great conversation, though. And it is really amazing what they're doing. You're talking about two professions that are both very challenging, right? Farming and retail. And they yeah. chose to do them both. I really also like how he honestly kind of balanced the pros and cons of organic from the farming perspective. And I really think it's going to be an interesting juxtaposition for our listeners this episode with your conversation, Chris. Yeah. So I'm going to be talking uh, with Matt, obviously, here from Infra. But we have a conversation with Jess and Ariel from the Real Organic Project. And so they're like an add-on organic certification, you know, so we're looking at, you know, taking things at extra level, making sure that, you know, Organic is following the spirit of organic in the certification. So we're going to get into that. But yeah, I thought it was interesting that Noel talks about, you know, even his yields being better, mostly farming organic with that little bit of conventional whenever he needed. And I like that analogy with the, you know, medicine that that really kind of put things into perspective. So yeah, I'm interesting to, to see how people take that practicality that he brought to the conversation and then the purity that we're going to be having up next. So Without further ado, we're going to uh, get into that conversation with the Real Organic Project. But first, we're going to hear from Kevin at Crofters Organic, a brand partnering with farmers committed to soil health and biodiversity on their farms. Hi, I'm Kevin Paulus, Director of Marketing from Crofters Organic, North America's number one organic fruit spread. We believe organic agriculture done right is key to biodiversity and soil health. That's why for 34 years, we've supported farmers that grow select varieties of fruit according to organic principles, keeping harmful chemicals out of the soil, water, and air. We take care to source organic fair trade cane sugar exclusively from the Native Green Cane Project in Brazil. Their farms have 23 times more biodiversity than conventional farms, and organic matter content of the soil has been regenerated to virgin forest levels. Every jar of Crofter's organic fruit spread is made at our sustainable facility in the UNESCO Georgian Bay Biosphere. We support their vital work protecting biodiversity in our home, the world's largest freshwater archipelago. Learn more about how we support biodiversity, soil health, and what makes Crofter's organic fruit spreads taste so great at croftersorganic.com. I'd like to welcome Jessica Roberts, Associate Director of Certification at The Real Organic Project, and Ariel Pressman, Director of Certification at The Real Organic Project, and Matt Olson, Fresh Program Manager at Infra. Hey folks, how's it going? Great, glad to be here. Thanks, Chris. Hey, Chris, thanks. Yeah, glad to be here, Chris. So our theme for this month is biodiversity and soil health. So what better than to have uh, a certifying body on the buyer's desk to talk about biodiversity and soil health. So Let's get this started off. Matt, from your experience of both working in produce and working at Infra and with Infra members, can you start off this conversation just talking about kind of how you see 
this conversation, this topic from your perspective? Yeah. You know, just in general, my experience in the industry at the moment anyway, is that there can be a lot of uh, confusion or even dissatisfaction with the USDA organic label just because there's a lot of moving parts. There's, you know, changes or loopholes that are kind of being exploited. You know, so in addition to that, there's multiple labels, certifications out there. So I'm just, you know, super excited to be here to just discuss what the Real Organic Project is all about and how you can differentiate yourself in the uh, in the marketplace. Awesome. Thanks for saying that, Matt. So to, to Jessica and Ariel, there is a subset of people within the natural foods industry that don't feel that organic certifications are transparent, kind of what Matt alluded to. Um, so I think one thing we want to know is like, what's your place in the market? Like, who do you certify and then how do you fit in with some of these other organic labels that Matt talked about with like either USDA organic or regenerative organic? Ariel, maybe we start with you and then uh, Jessica, you can jump in. Yeah. So as far as who we certify, we're an add-on label, which means we're only working with farms that are already USDA certified organic. And we work with over a thousand farms across the country, everything from diversified vegetable farms to orchards, dairy farms, grain. We always say if it's certified organic and a farmer's growing it, we can work with them on it. And the role that we really try to play is to be this extra level of integrity and transparency, um, because you're exactly right. You know, the vast majority of certified organic farms are absolutely doing things the right way. And they're doing things by a common sense definition of what the rules were meant to be. But the problem is that the bad players have gotten so big and taken up so much marketplace um, that it gets very hard sometimes to find certified organic products that meet a common sense definition of what the, the customer would expect. Um, so the role we're playing is on a very kind of top level is to certify that, you know, if you're growing produce, if you're growing fruit, anything that grows in the ground, that it's actually being grown in healthy living soil, as opposed to hydroponic growing, container growing, aeroponic growing. And if you're raising animal products, the animals have actual real access to the outdoors and pasture, as opposed to animals that are being raised in these kind of feedlot or confinement situations, where again, I think the average organic consumer buys organic products because they assume that's always true of what they're buying. But unfortunately, the reality is that with enough kind of subterfuge and, and marketing, a lot of these larger companies have found ways to not meet those standards, but make consumers think that they have. I would just like to add that the certification is entirely free because we acknowledge that farmers have paid for their USDA organic certification. Um, and as an add-on, we like to say that we're light on bureaucracy, but heavy on integrity. So standing on the shoulders of that USDA organic certification, we don't have to do some of the paperwork because we know it's already been done by their NOP inspector annually. Uh, so we can get out in the fields and really look at what's going on with the farmer in a different way. That's great. Ariel, you're in a hotel room right now because you were just out uh, certifying some farms today. I don't know if you can tell us what farm you're at, but tell us a little bit about like what it's like going out and doing some of that work. I'd love to brag. I mean, a couple of the farms about at were actually renewal visits, so they're already certified with us, so I can tell you everything about them. Um, so yeah, I'm talking to you right now from Decorah, Iowa, which you might know for where Seed Saver Exchange is based out of, and there's just an amazing kind of small, small-scale agriculture scene out here, and we have a lot of great farms so I've been mostly visiting um, diversified vegetable farms, mostly kind of five acres and below. I was just out at an, an amazing farm called Humble Hands Harvest. And, you know, the farms we're working with in the end of the day are really looking to caretake for the environment. They're looking to caretake for their customers and they're looking to have transparency around what they're doing. Um, so what I mean by that is that 
we're trying to make sure that what customers think they're getting is actually what they're getting. So when we go out to the farms, like Jessica said, we're really not hyper-focused on the bureaucratic part of it. I think there is a place for paperwork, but the unfortunate part that we all know is that you can fake paperwork, right? But what we feel like is by actually going out to the farms, building relationships with the farmers, understanding the why of the farm, and literally walking around. So everybody in the certification program has farmed in the past. So we feel like by sending people out that really know what they're looking at and walking around, we can get a much better feel for what the farm is about and whether they're being transparent with their practices than if we were just doing a paper audit where you know things might look great on paper, but then it might be a different reality in the field. So I have a great time. I, I farmed for 10 years and getting to go out to some of the best farms in the country and just literally walk around and see everything they do so well and getting to just learn about all the different practices and then hopefully pollinate that to other farms too. I'll just say that's the other fun part of what we do is because we're not a government program, you know, we can do information sharing. So when a national organic program inspector comes out, they're actually barred by regulation from giving advice. I've personally been out to over 300 farms for this job. It would be crazy if somebody dragged me over. Just happened today. Somebody dragged me over. They have a problem with army worms. They had no idea what to do about it. I had army worms on my farm. I was able to share how I resolved that issue. Um, so really trying to bring that community back into the work we're doing and saying this is about a rising tide should lift all boats. We need to have some integrity and separation as a certifier, but it doesn't mean we need to be working against the people that we're certifying. The whole point is we're working in collaboration with them towards a more transparent and higher integrity reality for kind of the organic food system. Great. And to bring that back to to retailers, you know, um, Jessica, you have a background in retail, and I think it's great that you have a farming background, you have a retail background, and that really helps kind of make this connection. So one thing I want to know is like, how do we educate retailers in this importance of the biodiversity and, and the work you're doing in the Real Organic Project? And how do we then help retailers educate consumers and make sense of all these labels? It's a great question. I think it begins with just talking about it and having the space to have the conversation. We're really excited to be working with Infra and, and having that time um, to, to educate. Uh, we're always happy to go in front of customers or meet with big groups to give education. Our organization also produces a podcast and an annual symposium, which are great ways for people to learn more about our work, uh, as well as visiting our website or Instagram to see standards and, and the way that we uphold those. I just wanted to say, like, I really... Like hearing about you going out to the farms and making those connections and everything, you know, from a former retailer perspective and, you know, working with the, the infra retailer community, like that is just at that store level, a very important component too to like get to know the farmers, do farm visits. And, you know, the fact that you guys are facilitating and doing that yourself just really I think it's a great way to build that community connection like across the farm to the retailer, to the consumers. And it's just kind of that that education and in in person experience is just invaluable. It, it's funny you mentioned that, Matt, because I was having a conversation today with a farmer about, you know, you can't really certify whether farms help build community. But I think in the end of the day, that's the net result of what we're trying to do, which is when you kind of just turn organic, which is really a grassroots movement into a bureaucratic checklist, you lose the community aspect. And then I think you lose a lot of the alternative food system that we've all been working, you know, for generations to build. And I think that's why, honestly, I feel so much concert when we first started talking with Infra about 
we're all being these kind of small fish in a big pond trying to find each other and trying to, you know, fight that battle. So I think it's, I just want to say, I think it's that community aspect is what often attracts people to organic food, whether it's from a retailer or a farm. And I was just reflecting today on a farm that, you know, I loved when I was farming that there was environmental stewardship and there was good food, but I'm a city kid. I was raised in the suburbs. What really attracted me to this community was the community. It was like, oh, this is an amazing group of people. Everybody's working together. They're collaborating. I don't think you'll find another industry in the world where everybody works to help their so-called competitors to do better because uh, we all know that we're working towards a greater goal here. And I think we really worry that if we don't actively move that ball forward, we start losing it. And it just becomes this kind of anonymous marketing term instead of instead of a move. In the world I'd like to see, agriculture is the center of community building. And I think it is, you know, it can be. And I think that customers are really hungry for that as well, that high touch experience. So any way we can help to build those connections, we're here to do it. That's great. And I think that's why there's so much alignment with the work that you're doing at the Real Organic Project and what we're doing with Infra and Infra Retailers is really all about building that retail community. So the synergy couldn't be any any brighter, right? To bring it back to, to the talk about biodiversity, which I know you could both, all three of you could talk about for hours, you know, it is a requirement of the USDA organic standards, but there's some loopholes, I think, maybe when it comes to that. Correct me if I'm wrong, but um, how do you view the importance of biodiversity in the Real Organic Project and the Real Organic Project farms? How do you talk to farmers about it? And like, I just want to know a little bit more of that discussion. Jessica, maybe we start with you on this one. Sure. Yeah. So I think at the baseline, what we're talking about with our add-on is managing soil. And even through pasture, that is management of soil. So I'd like to highlight here that a lot of our certification is about soil biodiversity and, and the organisms that are living there. It's really necessary. I think we are looking at that at every farm. But on uh, the macro level of biodiversity of species that are like flora and fauna, we do have a soil health rubric that we complete with each farmer. And biodiversity is a question on that. And it is a pass fail. It's really to get a baseline of where a farmer is and then look for continuous improvement. So they get a score on that zero to four. Um, and then hopefully in future years, we can follow up and see that that has improved. We can connect them with other farmers who have scored very high there to learn ways that they can improve that biodiversity. That's so great because I think it's that peer-to-peer learning and, and finding out it's it's one to be told a thing from somebody who's telling you to do the thing, but to find the, the someone that's already done the thing and done it well to teach those folks how to pr- make progress, I think is amazing. I think I think it's also really important that when you have a community norm of a certain practice or trying to achieve a certain practice, I think that just is like the rising tide that lifts all boats, right? And I think what's unfortunately happened on a corporate level with organic is the community norm has become what is the easiest way to get out of these standards? And I think what we want to get back to is this idea of the community norm is we're trying to hit the intention of the standards, not just the letter of the law, but the actual spirit of the law. And I think for so many of the farms we work with, what that really means is finding ways to, as best we can, farm in concert with nature as part of it. I think when we're talking about the types of farming that we're trying to kind of separate ourselves from, when we're talking about hydroponics or confinement farming of animals, that's really about just removing that production from the natural environment. And when that's the case, you don't have aligned incentives anymore because you can farm all those chickens without actually taking care of the environment or caring about it. And I think what we'd really like to see, or what I'd like to see more personally, is if you look at, for example, the brewery industry, 
It's really interesting. Even the really big breweries know they need good, clean water to be able to make their beer. So their their incentives are aligned to take care of the environment so they can also make their product. And I think when we can do that with farming, it all falls into place, right? You don't need endless checklists when it just all kind of makes sense to have that be the way the community wants to and, and needs to operate. Awesome. One thing, hearing you guys talk about the Real Organic Project, it, it makes me think about Regenerative Organic Certified. So to me, it seems like there's a lot of alignment there, which Regenerative Organic Certified, they do certifications for package grocery, things like that. I don't think you guys go to that far. You guys are really focused on the farmer. But for, for folks listening who have never heard of the Real Organic Project or have maybe seen it on a piece of produce that has come in on a box or something like that, um, they're like, hmm, I wonder what this is about. Can you, can you tell me a little bit more about how you guys work and how you guys maybe overlap with the regenerative? Are you uh, maybe a, a path to regenerative to maybe some of these farmers or like what's some of the differentiation? I think if you look at it as a Venn diagram, basically regenerative organic, you're right, was formed by kind of some larger brands, but really good brands like Dr. Bronner's and Patagonia that were basically saying, we want to be able to certify our supply chain. And then in the end of the day, then be able to show the consumers, hey, we've done the work like a place like Dr. Bronner's. The average eater may not know this, but I mean, I'm I'm a lifelong customer because I know a lot about them. And they go miles above the industry standards to like get the good stuff. But then the consumer walks into the store and goes, I don't know, there's five types of soap. They all look the same to me. So I think the idea was to give them a way to kind of stand out and differentiate themselves. So they also certify farmers. But then I'd say where we came from is because we were started by the farmers in the Venn diagram. We do work with some products, but for the most part, we're working with farmers. So I think we're all working towards the same reality. It's like two separate lenses on very similar work. You know, I would say, honestly, the biggest difference is to my mind, just come from how they were started. And I don't think it's a good or bad. I think it's just a different, you know, I think ROC has done an excellent job of being able to work with these brands that the average eater is going to recognize in their store and kind of get the claim and get the sourcing correct. And I think we've done a really great job of working with the base foundational level of farms in this country, certified organic farms to kind of build this up as a grassroots movement. I think both are required and both are important. It's just two very different lenses on the work. Matt, I just wanted to give you a chance here if you want to, there's anything else that you want to ask or dig into. You know, I just think just going back to that, the fact that you are, have the ability to educate on the farm, like with your, the army worm example that you said, you know, where it's, you're not just going in and, you know, judging and leaving, but you're working holistically. And that's just such a, important community aspect kind of related but back to the the ROC label and the USDA label and all that do you I don't know see any challenges with the you know kind of the label certification fatigue to the consumer and people being able to differentiate between those on the shelves I definitely know that that's real from my time in retail, you know, but I think it's just also so important because not everyone can go to a farmer's market and shop a lot. You know, most people shop at a grocery and they need to have that label. The farmer's not there to tell you the story. I think that there is a real issue with label fatigue, but we're hopeful that we're, we're going to be the ones that they recognize. And I think ROC is the same way. You know, I think it's out there and able to be recognized and hopefully they can define what regenerative means, because I think that's something that I'm personally worried about is that that word will not have the meaning that it should and can be so easily co-opted because it hasn't been regulated. I think one thing I would just say about the label fatigue as well, 
is, look, I, I feel it as a shopper. I'm empathetic. Um, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've gone to the store, bought something I just assumed was certified organic because there were so many logos on it. And then I get home and I'm like, oh my God, I got the wrong canola oil. So, and this is my job. So obviously I'm getting it wrong. It's going to be tough for the average person. But, you know, obviously I'm going to be a little biased here, but I'd really encourage consumers if they're feeling that fatigue, look for labels that are telling you what the farm is doing, not just what the farm is not doing. I think a lot of the proliferation of these labels is saying, well, it doesn't have that one chemical in it or it doesn't have that one thing. But at the end of the day, there's hundreds of herbicides that you might be concerned about getting into your diet or there's hundreds of other issues. So I think when you can look at labels like ROC or Real Organic Project that are trying to look more holistically about what are the farms doing to do better, I think that answers a lot of the label fatigue. And then you don't need 10 different labels to tell you, well, it doesn't have that one thing and they didn't do that one thing over there. Yeah, I just think moving towards a more holistic reality is 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 what we want. But the other thing I was just going to say is I think these labels are all coming out for a reason. And it's because, unfortunately, the National Organic Program's not doing the job it should. So obviously, there's a need that's not being filled. I always tell people, I love my job. I would love to be put out of business. I mean, genuinely, like this job should not be necessary. <laughs> so I think if we can move towards a reality where things mean what they say they mean, we can also move away from this label fatigue. That's great. That makes a lot of sense. I really like what you said about the looking for what they're doing as opposed to like what is not being done or forbidden or whatever. That's a good positive way to frame it. Yeah. And I think that the the connection I see too is we uh, we talked with Amanda Archila, the executive director of Fairtrade America on this podcast a few episodes ago. And we asked her a similar thing about the label fatigue and all the different fair trades. And one thing she said is, you know, if they're layered, that's giving you another indicator, right? So if it is organic certified, it is ROC certified. If it does have the Real Organic Project and then has these other certifiers that are, you know, no no glyphosate, no GMOs, no all this stuff on top of that, then there's that added layer of transparency. But without some of those base foundation, like organic is the floor, right? Organic should be the minimum. And then there's the add-ons that go beyond that and then there's also the other things that maybe take away from what's not in the product. What, what do you think of, of that kind of summary? I think it can, you know, I might have a slightly different opinion than that. I get where that opinion comes from and I can totally respect it. But at the same token, I feel like sometimes what I've seen from, from some products is the idea of this label overload, which then people just go, well, it looks like it's been verified by 900 places. But, you know, you get to the point where especially as an eater, it gets very hard to know what the integrity of those certifications are. You know, so for example, like I'm not going to call out anyone specific, but it's like some of these are just literally run by the industries policing themselves and don't hold much weight. Or when you look at some of these claims, I don't know if you read, there was just this big report that came out on, you know, in theory, the USDA is supposed to be vetting even claims of cage-free or pasture-raised. People have to get permission to use it. And the evidence they require at times is as scant as a farmer submitting a statement saying, I pasture raised my eggs, right? And I think as an eater, I, I, would, I would argue that then that claim becomes actually the inverse of useful. But maybe that farmer is actually pasture. I don't know. That's kind of the point, right? And I don't want to call it all into question. But I think sometimes, unfortunately, I think sometimes the marketing can become more important than the practices. So yeah, I don't, to be clear, I don't think it's a bad thing that the organizations you mentioned, for the most part, I don't think are a bad thing if people are working with. And we work with quite a few farms that, for example, are USDA organic, ROC certified, ROP certified. 
And I think that is their effort to kind of get at what you were saying, which is to say, look, like we have nothing to hide here. We're willing to sign up for any of it, you know, because we're going to come out, we're going to come out clean. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a really, it's a really tough one. Uh, it's, 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 it's a tough one to get through out there. So I, I think we did a pretty good job of capturing, you know, talking about biodiversity, especially in, in the, I, I love your guys's summation of like the, the, the macro and the micro, you know, the micro is really the soil, the macro is, you know, the animals that, you know, the different types of things are growing, everything like that. Is there anything else that you guys want to leave on when it comes to biodiversity and soil? Like what's, what's your parting message for, for folks listening? I think that climate change is real and that the food system is responsible for over a third of global greenhouse emissions. But I also believe that it could be the single largest drawdown of those emissions if we are reintegrating carbon into the soil through the natural processes of agriculture. I would just say, I think in a, in a much broader picture that for eaters that are listening to the podcast, I think what industry wants us to believe is that individual people cannot have an impact. And that is so not true. So what I really encourage people to do is when you go shopping, challenge yourself to ask one question in the store. I mean, Chris, I remember, you know, we met when you were working at Lake Wins. I don't have to tell you if 10 customers came into a store in a day and asked a question about a product, uh, I think there'd be there'd be a meeting, <laughs> you know, about it. And I think in the end of the day, retailers are going to respond to their customers. And so I really think sometimes people get overwhelmed and they go, what do you mean? I can't buy everything the right way. I can't do all this research. Don't get overwhelmed by it. Pick one thing every day. Care about that. Ask a question about it. That's really how organic got started in this country was just this slow movement of people asking more questions and making better purchases. Um, and I'd really encourage people to do the same if they care about supporting soil health and biodiversity. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jessica, Ariel, and Matt for being on Retail Talk today and digging into biodiversity and soil health. Uh, really appreciate it. And if folks want to learn more about the Real Organic Project, you can find them on social and online. And one of you guys want to give us the website? It's realorganicproject.org. Don't forget that. All right. Thanks, folks. Have a good one. Take care. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Chris, I loved your and Matt's conversation with the Real Organic Project. I liked so many things about it, but I really liked the less bureaucracy, more integrity. I feel like not only does that make perfect sense in this context, but that is just a phrase we could use for so many things in retail that would make so much more sense. Totally. Yeah, no, I, I love hearing from them and I, I love talking with them. And I did, I worked at a co-op here locally in Minnesota when he was the, the owner of a farm seed to seed. And we would talk in the co-op, you know, when he would come in to deliver. And he always had really good perspective on what he was doing in farming, what new practices he was working on, how he was trying to build integrity. To, to, so to see him now as the executive director at the Real Organic Project and now working with a thousand farms nationwide to really just, you know, get folks to follow that spirit of organic and organic certification. It's, it's so awesome to see you know, him and Jess doing that great work. I love that. We have so many people on this episode that are doing great work. And to that end, I think our final interview with the legend that is Jordan Rubin oh. will really highlight. Yeah, right? Yeah. So good. And he's his energy is infectious. I think I even say that in the interview um, because he's so passionate about this work. 
And it's just so fascinating how they're approaching both being a farm and being a brand. So I think it's interesting. We have a retailer that's a farmer and now we have a brand that's doing farming on this episode as well. So wow, to really get all perspectives and to bring this around, right? I love that we actually plan these for episodes, but then as we talk through them, we're like, oh my gosh, look at all the cool connections we made. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, without further ado, let's get into this interview with Jordan. It's phenomenal. I can't wait for you all to hear it. But first, we're going to hear from Sandra from Walita, a body care brand with their own biodynamic farm using regenerative principles. Hi, I'm Sandra from the digital marketing team at Walita. And I'd like to talk about our pioneering and progressive commitment to biodiversity and soil health. Since 1921, Walita's been crafting plant-powered skincare that puts people and planet first, that deepens our connection to nature and leverages nature's wisdom to help our natural beauty shine. Soil, just like our skin, is a living, breathing ecosystem. It's the living skin of our earth, so to speak. And at Walita, we believe both need to be protected and cared for. We grow potent plant ingredients used in our iconic products like skin food on our own biodynamic farms where we practice regenerative farming principles, resulting in the healthiest, most biodiverse soil possible. We engage in more than 50 fair trade farming projects worldwide, supporting biodiversity protection and ecological balance. And as a B Corp, we believe the key to thriving ecosystems is healthy soil. To learn more, visit walita.com. I'd like to welcome Jordan Rubin, the founder and CEO of Ancient Nutrition to the buyer's desk. Hey, Jordan, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I appreciate you being here and taking the time. So uh, I want to start off by asking, you openly talk about your transformational health journey, which has helped to inspire so many people taking steps towards improving their own health over the years. But I want to know, what is your motivation around founding Ancient Nutrition and have your goals with that brand changed as it's grown? I would say... My goals and my vision has expanded. I, I always liken it to a little bit of a mountain climb. You just don't know what the horizon is until you get to another level. And so clearly years ago, if you would have said, Jordan, do you imagine you would be doing this at this time? Really, the answer is no. But I've been so blessed and I've learned that if you have a passion and a story that resonates, that you can go to pretty great heights, especially if your mission is to save the world with superfoods like ours is. And so right now I feel like our mission and vision are really on the cusp of what's necessary to see the transformation that all of us know is necessary. And so my, my vision's definitely larger. My personal mission statement, which has now become the company's mission statement is to heal the planet, feed the world and transform health. Those are obviously huge goals, but I truly believe that in my own small way, I can make a big impact doing that. And I like to tell other people who are listening that no matter if you have a backyard, if you're in an apartment and you've got, you know, a little patio or you have a thousand acres, you can begin to make a difference one millimeter of topsoil at a time, or in the case of a home, one composted banana peel at a time. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it, it is. It, you know, everyone can participate in, in every level. And I think that's one thing we've talked about the, with this podcast a lot is especially around regenerative egg, it's, you know, it's a journey to get there and, you know, people can participate in many different ways. So um, speaking on that, you guys have the ranch project and I love a good acronym, especially one that's an actual word and that is spelled correct. 
Um, and RANCH, for those listening, stands for Regenerative Agriculture, Nutrition, and Climate Health. Um, and, and one unique difference around RegenAg that, that I really thought was interesting is you guys focus on this nutritional aspect. RegenAg is typically spoken of in regard to environmental benefits. And that's a big focus, you know, sequestering carbon, things like that. But you really speak to the nutritional benefits. So can you talk to us about the specific ways that you guys measure the positive outcomes of, of a regenerative biodiverse farm? That's a great question. Well, we're blessed to have the premier regenerative research organization, Rodale Institute, on site with scientists every day on our farms. And so we are measuring soil health. And when I say soil health, I'm talking about about a thousand different measurements. We're measuring plant health through tissue culture. We're measuring animal health because we integrate animals into our system. And so if this works correctly in this virtuous cycle of regeneration, we're going to see the nutrition of the plants improve. We're going to see the nutrition of the animals improve. We're going to see the biodiversity and the, I'll say, formerly unquantifiable measurements of soil improve. And it's really across the board. I think what is missing right now in regenerative is the consumer payoff, right? Because we know that we should make the world a better place for those who come after us. We've said that for a very long time. But if I can show you that a papaya that is regenerative organic certified is more nutritious than organic, which is more nutritious than conventional, and also is free of GMOs, but then provides more vitamin C or more papain, which is an enzyme that's part of papaya, that I think is the holy grail, so to speak. And so nutrition is important for us when it comes to our soil. We want to feed our soil which feeds our plants, which feeds our animals. And all of that will feed into our ancient nutrition ingredients and products, which will feed the infra communities shelves, which we're very excited about. Well, that's so great. And specifically to the, the plants that you guys are working on, the superfood plants. So you guys have committed to planting a million superfood bearing trees like bushes, vines and shrubs by the end of next year, right? End of 2024. So how do you select those species and what are the challenges and maybe benefits to growing this biodiverse food forest? And how are you guys maybe already using that harvest or plan to use that harvest? Well, I'll answer that last question first. Believe it or not, we are set to launch in September the first ever regenerative organic certified, certified organic, certified non-GMO product line with 95% of the ingredients grown on our farm. So how we were able to do this this quickly, it's absolutely amazing. It couldn't have been done without the Regenerative Organic Alliance and their partnership. I couldn't be more proud about a product offering that I've ever been involved in because your members are going to have product on their shelf that we literally were harvesting eight weeks earlier, which that just doesn't happen. Uh, to answer the question in terms of how we choose species, I wish that I had this great farming background to share with you. I didn't have a green thumb or a green pinky growing up, but I have spent the last 14 years studying regenerative agriculture, nutrition, and all things planet healing. I wrote a book called Planet Heal Thyself in 2014, and I'll admit it, it was a little early. Now we're early, but not so early that we can't be appreciated. People really are excited about regenerative. They don't understand it fully, but they're excited with the limited information they have. So for me, we grow plants indoors and outdoors, but because of regenerative organic certification, all plants must spend the majority of their life in soil, not in a pot. So you have to have the roots in the ground, which is really interesting because our greenhouses are permanent. 
We don't have trees that we can move in and out. We have permanent deep-rooted trees in our greenhouses. So the tropical varieties started at 130 and whittled down to about 30 that worked well. And you might say, well, what does that mean? Well, for whatever reason, we grow guava really well, but jabotacaba, which is this really cool Brazilian grape, didn't do as well. And we didn't know that. We're just learning. So a lot of that process is iterative. And then outdoor, we started with 31, I'll call it America's Forgotten Superfoods, some of which you've heard of, some you haven't. Pawpaw, which is one of the coolest, best fruits in North America. It's the North America tropical fruit. Absolutely amazing. Persimmon is another one that is underappreciated. Aronia berries getting more appreciated. Various varieties of apples, but mostly smaller, like crab apple, common apple. We want the most nutrient-dense, highest antioxidant, not the most perfectly round, improved crops. So out of those 31, we're seeing, wow, mulberry does amazingly well, and it's so good for blood sugar and so nutritious for our animals if we use it for them. So we're going to be whittling down to probably the 20 species that work the best. And so by the time we plant our million, we believe it will be of the best varieties that have worked within our climate, within our system. Things on paper don't always translate to a farm. And I've learned that the hard way over and over again. Well, that's that's so cool. And that's that's so unique too, that you guys just kind of did a blanket trial. Like, let's see what works and let's see what actually does develop it within this climate versus just like picking them and sticking to it and, and having that escalation of commitment, even if it wasn't working. So that that's super exciting. So getting back to regenerative and, and one thing that you guys have said, and I don't know if this was you personally or, or something as a part of the company, but that regenerative agriculture is not a luxury, but a necessity. Um, so keeping the price low for consumers is important to keep things accessible. And, and that's all about making regenerative accessible, right? Both through price point and through education. Um, but you also have a goal to reduce plastic use by 25% at the end of next year, 2024, which can incur higher costs when you use sustainable packaging like glass or anything like that. So how do you balance some of these goals of, you know, being accessible, but also being sustainable? Like where, where do you find the middle, middle ground there? Yeah, it's been difficult because the regenerative organic supply chain is virtually nil. So that's why 95% of the ingredients in our new regenerative organic certified supplements are grown on our farms. It was That's out of necessity as well. We can't in good conscience offer great things inside of the bottle and the bottle be a problem instead of part of the solution. So we're actually becoming much more sustainable than glass, believe it or not. We are pioneering a biodegradable plastic solution where in the right conditions, and I'm talking about oxygen and light, the bottle breaks down in 12 months from plastic to dirt. So this is really exciting. So we've already launched one SKU, our probiotic that we recently brought to the market called SBO Probiotics Trinity. And all of our regenerative organic certified SKUs are in this biodegradable packaging. By the end of next year, our goal is to have our entire line in biodegradable packaging. And then we're already working on the next generation of packaging, which we believe will be home compostable, made from bacteria and not contributing any microplastics to waterways. So we have a team of people, a small but mighty team that are on the forefront of sustainable packaging as it relates to dietary supplements. And we are looking at every technology there is. Many look great again on paper, but the zipper doesn't work. The oxygen barrier doesn't work. Uh, this part is not compostable, but this part is. So it's a real commitment. I would much rather 
not eliminate plastic. I'd much rather have only packaging that breaks down into dirt or soil. That would be way better than recycling or thinning out our plastic bottle, if you will. Oh, that's so cool to hear. Yeah, I was wondering if you guys were going to go to glass and, and how, how that was going to look. So that's super interesting. So thanks for sharing that with us. So bringing it back to the independent retailer, Mama Jeans Natural Market, who's an infra member uh, down in Missouri with three stores, partners with you guys in your feed to seed program. And so they work to divert their food waste to feed animals on your farm, which is super cool. So can you tell us a little bit about how that program works? And for one, let us know if other infra members can help support that. Um, and you have a goal that you're looking to reach of 15 million pounds of food waste used on your farm by 2030, which is fantastic. So I just want to know more about this. Yes, it's perhaps our favorite initiative. I was looking at our birds. We have 3,000 chickens, ducks, and turkeys on two farms each. So that's 6,000. And we're feeding them non-GMO grain, but the grains are mono crop. They're, they're, they come at an expense. And then conversely, I was at my favorite organic health food restaurant in the Nashville area. And I realized that all of these big, wonderful portions of salads, burgers, whatever it were, are getting dumped in garbage cans going to the landfill. And I thought, wait a minute, I know this restaurant slash health market would love to be food waste free. And I would love to stop buying grain for my birds. Now, I might not save any money, but if I could start diverting food waste from local organizations, I could help them. And then I could feed my animals probably something healthier than just a few grains, which even the best eggs out there, the, the people think they're eating bugs and grass. Most of their diet's grain. And even if it's soy-free, uh, non-GMO, it's still grain and it still contributes to monocrop agriculture. So we started working with Mama Jeans, Sprouts Farmer's Market. We, we even worked with the Hilton Hotel where we had our corporate event because they heard what we were doing and said, we want to put our fruit and vegetable waste into this program. A hospital has come to the table as well. So we're really excited. In addition to diverting this food waste, which is 20,000 pounds a week, believe it or not, we're actually realizing that this is not a slurry of goop. These are beautiful pomegranates and jackfruits and dragon fruits. So we've created an entire food supply of harv by harvesting seeds from food scraps. So you asked, what can infra members do? Number one, if you're in the, the state of Tennessee, I know it's a big state, but we would love to work with you on our farm. I know there's not a lot of infra members in the state of Tennessee, but uh, if someone's listening, we'd love to work with you and begin picking up your uh, food scraps. We have a whole system. We handle it all. We educate, we train. But I, my vision is for health food stores and grocery stores, everyone to partner with a farm or have their own farm where they divert their food waste and I literally believe you could take today's trash and make it tomorrow's treasure. And, and I'll go a step further. Your produce aisle can be filled with produce that grew from your food scrap seeds. And there's not even a name for it. Is it upcycled? Is it recycled? No, it's transformation. So just to give you an idea, we are creating entire greenhouses and outdoor growing orchards from seeds that come from food scraps. A pomegranate has 613 seeds and you can probably get in a greenhouse 500 pomegranate trees from that. Uh, a papaya has 250 seeds. A jackfruit has 50. I mean, people are paying money for these seeds and retailers are throwing it in the trash. 
And if you compost it, the seeds burn up. So when I saw this, I said, hey, don't compost it. I want to plant some of this. We're, we're finding ginger and turmeric that we're planting. Uh, you can take conventional non-GMO seeds and turn it into regenerative organic certified crops in the future. Sorry, I, I get real excited about this. I could go on and on. Yeah, no, your, your excitement is infectious. And it's so inspirational talking to you. Um, you know, I watched some of your videos before this and to, just to try to get, get to know you a little bit more. And and I just love being able to talk to you in person. It's it's quite a pleasure. So I, I appreciate your time today. I'm definitely inspired after this conversation and I hope the people listening are as well. So uh, I appreciate you being here. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Uh, likewise. And I just want to say this, if you're an Infra member and you are passionate about the natural products, independent health food stores, which I am. It's it's where I shop. It's who I am. It. I, I was literally born into this industry. My parents were founders of two co-ops in the uh, hippie days of the 70s. And everybody's worried about different competition, whether it's, quote, in your store with Amazon and someone's device, or if it's a big box store or drug store that's now carrying nutritional products. You can't control what other people do, but what you can control is the brands you get behind and who you feature and what messaging comes not only to the consumer, but to the larger network of vendors. When we start presenting this regenerative organic certified product line, it's a must carry because if you bring this product line on and you put it front and center on every end cap, I know I'm wishful thinking here, all it's going to do is encourage other brands to find a regenerative organic certified supply chain, to partner with farms, to start a farm. And this is really your heartbeat. So if you're an independent health food store, your heartbeat is to bring transparency, integrity, and efficacy to your customers in ways that other bigger store chains can't. So get behind regenerative organic. The tagline of regenerative organic is farm like the world depends on it. And I'll leave it at that. Couldn't be said any better, but let's do this together I bet if we make Regenerative Organic Certified Supplements a success, that there will be half a dozen brands in the next two years that come on board. And that will literally mean topsoil, animals, and people are saved. Awesome. Couldn't said it better myself. Thank you so much, Jordan. Take care. Thank you. Join us next episode as we'll be chatting end caps, displays, and case stacks. Yes, super exciting, fun topic. I'm going to bring on our new promotions and merchandising advisory team we have at Infra. So I'm going to be talking to all those folks on that team. We're going to talk about big stores, small stores, how to merchandise in them, and how to use data. And I also have our, we'll call Matt Olson from Infra now, a, a buyer's desk correspondent at this point. And him and I are going to be co-interviewing Four Seasons senior merchandiser, Brian Day. So join us next month. Should be fun. Bye. Bye. Well, folks, that's it for this episode of The Buyer's Desk. Thanks to Angela for co-hosting. And I appreciate the contributions from Infra staff, Infra members, and Infra vendors for helping to make this episode happen. I appreciate all of you who listened this far, and I hope to see you next month for another episode.